we are in distress, we tend to focus inwardly. We tend to think of everything in terms of how it affects me. Personality-wise, I tend to be towards being melancholy, if you know what that means. And it's only amplified when things are difficult around me. I really have to fight against this. The Lord has used my wife and particularly my calling in Christ to bring me out of such moods. She tends to remind me of what is true, the hope and encouragement we have in Christ. Moreover, the Lord has called me to be a preacher and a teacher of his word, and I simply cannot be inwardly focused while I'm looking at his word, his truth. Past couple weeks, with our recent move and the treasure chest of things that we found that are just not right, has been frustrating and distracting to me. Preparing for the past couple of weeks for Sunday has been very difficult. I just wanted to be honest with you all about that for all of those reasons. But I know I'm not alone in this. Perhaps some of us tend to be that way by virtue of our personalities, but there's always a breaking point for everyone. I think the pandemic has definitely hit a sore spot with many. The various ways in which people have been impacted by COVID has brought out a great deal of frustration, irritation, sometimes just plain old meanness. We've all been on edge, and when you're on edge, it's very easy to be offended by little things. Things that in the big scheme of life are not that significant become significant to you. You find yourself dwelling on these things, whatever the things are, simply because it impacts you negatively. And instead of allowing for love to cover a multitude of sins, particularly in dealing with others, since you have nothing else better to do, you set about trying to right every wrong that is in the world today, yourself. Well, take a look at the world around us these days. Tensions are high everywhere. It should not be a surprise that we have so many people engaged in protests and other forms of violence. Here in the U.S., we're facing a major election, which is usually a tense time anyway, but particularly now in the midst of a pandemic, everything is heightened. This is a degree that we have a showdown between a governor and a U.S. major state, a U.S. state, and a large church, who's pushing back against being prohibited from meeting. There are many more considerations to that that we won't go into. But suffice it to say that there's just a lot of stuff going on right now in our world. And it's easy to become distracted. It's so easy for us as the church to get off mission, to be distracted from the mission, to take up arms, so to speak, to fight against so many lesser battles that we miss the greater war that's constantly raging. And we miss a simple command that our commander-in-chief has given us. Psalm 96 is a good reminder of the mission. It's an attention-grabbing, course-correcting sort of message that I believe is so important for us to hear today. The message of the psalm is very simple. It's this. All of the earth ought to sing praise to the Lord. Therefore, the people of God must initiate praise and invite praise from the nations. The Lord is... Worthy of all praise and adoration. We know that. And so we ought to be praising to the degree that others, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people who do not yet know the Lord, fall down on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? We must praise him and invite others to do the same. That's our mission. There are so many other things that are not our mission, so many other things that we could focus on that may be good things, but will distract us from that very basic duty as God's people. Well, let's go ahead and read Psalm 96 again together. You can never read God's word enough. 
like to read it again just to reorient our minds to the text at hand. Psalm 96. Again, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for your word. As we come before your word, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the psalm is broken up into two main sections. Both sections include a call to praise as well as the cause for praise. The first section is in verses 1 through 6, and we're called to praise the Lord because he is our regal creator. And in verses 7 through 13, the second half, we are called to praise the Lord because he is a righteous king. Again, in verses 1 through 6, we're called to praise because he's a regal creator. 7 through 13, he is our righteous king. Let's look again at that first point that we're called to praise the Lord because he is our regal creator. That's in verses 1 through 6, which I won't read again. But as I mentioned before, each section, each half has a call to praise and the cause. It gives us a call to praise, an invitation to praise God, and then he tells us why. Well, in verses 1 through 3 of this first section, we see the call to praise. In 4 through 6, we see the cause. Note again the call to praise in 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This is one of those good summary verses. This is what the psalm is all about. It's a universal call to praise the Lord. That it is a universal call to praise the Lord is striking because this is a psalm. It was written to Israel for Israel. You wouldn't expect to have a portion of a psalm addressed to the peoples of the world. That doesn't really make sense if they're using it as a part of their worship. And yet that's what we see here. This is a call for all the earth to praise the Lord. Verse 1, all the earth. Verse 3, the nations. Verse 5, the peoples. Verse 7, the families of the peoples. Verse 10, the nations, the peoples. Verse 13, the peoples. The scope of this psalm is international. It is worldwide. It is focused on all people, all families. And as we saw in Revelation, every tribe and tongue and nation. People often oversimplify the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament was about Israel. The New Testament is about the church. Well, the whole of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are first about the Lord and second about his 
work to redeem all of humanity, all of mankind. The reality is that he chose to go about that redeeming of humanity in a particular way through a particular people, but the scope of both the Old and New Testament with respect to humanity is all of humanity. We just went through the book of Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We saw God setting apart a people through Abraham in order to be a blessing to all people. And we got glimpses of that as we continue to move through the book of Genesis, that first book, that book of beginnings that set the tone for the whole rest of Scripture. God is at work redeeming all of humankind. And so it's no surprise that he would allow a psalm to be written to this one people that is so expansive, intending to reach all of humanity. Now, Israel has had a difficult time understanding this, and it's reasonable. The level of disdain and hatred that we see, sometimes like in the book of Jonah, was not what the Lord intended. In Ephesians 2, Paul gives us an apt description of the dividing wall of hostility, as he refers to it later in that passage. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how Israel would have saw the Gentiles. They were strangers to the covenants. They had no part in the covenant. They were strangers. They were separated from the Messiah. The coming Messiah was their Messiah, Israel's Messiah. They were alienated from Israel. They had no hope they were without God in the world. And largely that was true. But it did bring hostility. There was a very real sense in which Israel began to loathe the Gentile nations around them because of their privileged position. Thankfully, though, as Paul goes on to say in the rest of this section of Ephesians, In Christ, that dividing wall is broken down, or really none of us would be sitting here today. It does bring up a good point, though. I wonder how many of us tend to think that way about the unbelieving world around us. I wonder how many of us tend to be more critical of unbelievers in our society, in the nations around us, in our neighborhoods, our families. How many of us feel hostility towards them instead of the desire to see that they come to know and be brought near to our Savior? How many of you, like Jonah, if you were to be asked by the Lord, go to that country over there, that country where Christians are being murdered, slaughtered. Go there and preach the gospel. How many of us in this room would run in the exact opposite direction as far as we could go? And not because we're scared. I'm not talking about that. Because sometimes we are afraid. That's part of being human. But the reason why we would flee in the opposite direction is the same reason why Jonah fled. Because he doesn't want to see them redeemed. Those people over there are unredeemable, irredeemable. Sometimes we think that way about unbelievers when we see the rampant immorality and foolishness in the world. And I say that to our shame. Back to our text, this psalm is about praise. Again, the phrase, sing to the Lord, is repeated twice in that verse. We are to sing to him. We are to have a song, a new song, a newly created song, especially for him. And we're to use the voices that he's given us to sing that new song. 
And I should point out that this is a command, right? There are no qualifiers. It's not optional. Every inhabitant on God's green earth ought to sing to him. Think about that. Every church building, really every building, should be packed to the gills every Sunday morning with people all over the world giving praise and glorifying our God. He deserves that, and he requires that. And I just want to say, the reason why we do evangelism, the reason why we preach Christ, is not because people have invited us to do it, or given us an invitation to do it, or because we've made friends with them, and so now we feel like we can make a friend with them, and then we can share the gospel. The reason why we share the gospel is because God requires obedience. God requires that we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like here we see he requires praise. I mentioned the difference in the term Lord last week. In this psalm, the word for Lord is the covenant name for God. It's not just a term of rulership. This is the Lord we're speaking of. The Lord who revealed himself to Moses and the children of Israel, as we'll soon see, he is the one who created heaven and earth. It is him for whom we should sing. So the question becomes, if God has revealed himself to one family group, how will all the earth come to praise the Lord? If he's not revealed himself particularly to every family of the earth, to every nation, to every people group, then how will they sing? How can they possibly obey this command? Look again at verses 2 and 3. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. If verse 1 was directed to the whole earth, I think verses 2 through 3 are directed toward the people of God. Here they are commanded to sing, they are commanded to praise. When we think about worship, that's often what we envision. We envision singing, right? Worship certainly encompasses all of what we do when we gather together as the people of God on Sunday mornings. But that one element of our gathering, our times of singing, perhaps more than any other aspect of our gathering, really helps to underscore the nature of worship. Well, what is worship? Worship is ascribing worth. And when we sing, I mean when we really sing, we're often singing out of an overflow of our worship. We are engaged in mind and heart in ascribing worth to God to the degree that it comes out in jubilant song. I like this quote that I came across while I was studying. It's a lengthy quote. Bear with me. The writer said this, worship is a serious mental activity. It involves hard thinking and is possible only because of God's prior revelation in the Bible, which means that we must begin our worship efforts by studying that book. He says that is why our gatherings are never only in song, but rather song driven by truth, prayers driven by truth, our learning driven by truth. He goes on to say that these truths call for a passionate response. God loves us, cares for us, preserves us, guides us, and lifts us up when we are down, but he never stops doing these things. Such truths call for our response. Singing provides this response. It provides a unique joining of biblical content and emotional ascent. Music alone does not do this joining, though it can prepare us for worship by quieting our hearts to hear the voice of God in Scripture. Words alone, while we can and do respond to them personally and emotionally, become far more a part of us, and far more joyful when we sing them. They become even more joyful when we sing them with others, because as we do, when we together confess that these things we heard are true, we say amen and hallelujah to them. He says we confess that they are a delight 
and joy for us, and we join with others who make that same confession. End quote. The reason God's people are called to sing is expressed in verse 4. It says, the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. He's referring to a different passage there. But this is, by the way, why you should sing with all that you can on Sunday mornings. Because when we sing, our ability to sing is not the question. It's not the issue. That you can sing, you know, an opera, operetta, or whatever, you know, the right term is for that. That you can, you can hold a note, that, you know, you can uh, perform a solo in church is not the issue. No one's really concerned about that. But when you sing, what you're doing is you're, you should be praising God. And so it doesn't matter what it sounds like. It matters what you're saying. It matters that your heart is engaged. And the reality is that we often come to service burdened, weighed down, discouraged, distracted. And what we need to hear from you is that God is good. God is great. God is holy. God is our rock. God is our refuge. God is our strength. And we sing that to one another on Sunday mornings. And God uses that to encourage our souls so we can get back out into the world. Part of the reason why I wanted to underscore that is because of what it says in the next part of verses 2 through 3. He says, Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among the peoples. Again, when we sing in response to the truth that we're reminded of from his word, we're making a declaration. Well, we ought to be making a declaration. People who hear us singing ought to understand that we are taking delight in the Lord our God and are not ashamed to express it with our lips. We're excited to tell of his salvation, his glory, even to the ends of the earth. Listen, what was the last best thing you had? The last really good thing you had, whatever that was, a great meal, He watched a great movie, read a great book, grew a great plant in your garden. What was it? And what did you do after that? When somebody asked you, how was your day? What happened this week? What did you do? You told them about that really great thing that you had. You couldn't help it. You were spilling over, gushing about that really great thing. Because that's what we do when we take delight in something. We can't help but share about it. Why should it be any different with the Lord? When we come here and we sing every Sunday, are we singing on Monday? You know, the measure of your Christianity, the measure of your faith is not just what you do on Sunday mornings. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. Are you singing on those days as well? Have you truly taken delight in the Lord our God to the degree that you have a song of praise on your lips for him every single day. And we all have off days, obviously. We all have bad days, obviously. But our off days and our bad days don't change who the Lord is. And if he's good, then he's good. 
If he's delightful, then he is delightful. And we should be able to express that no matter what. You take delight in the salvation of God in that way. Well, that was the first call to praise in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 6, we see the first cause of our praise. We should be praising the Lord. All the earth should praise the Lord. The people of God who have particularly benefited from his redemptive work as they meditate on these truths should sing with delight, and we should do so to the ends of the earth. Now we see an explicitly stated cause in the text, verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Why should all the earth praise the Lord? Well, he alone is our creator. Great is the Lord. He is great and thus deserves great praise. He should be feared above all gods. And the reason is clear. It's not as if there are actually other gods. There are no other gods. The Lord says it plainly in Isaiah chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Now that would be rather proud and arrogant of him to say if it wasn't true. But it is true. There is no other God. There are no other gods. Only the Lord. When we sing holy, 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 again, we typically think about moral purity. But the essence of the term holy in biblical theology is separateness, distinctness, otherness. To be holy is to be set apart. In the context of sin, certainly idea, the idea is to be set apart from sin. However, in this general sense, to be holy is to be set apart from all others. There is truly no one like the Lord our God. Look back at the text again. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. There are no other gods but the same nations, the same peoples who ought to be praising the Lord. Again, covenant name for God as revealed in Moses. The same people who ought to be praising the Lord are praising other things. They are worshiping other things. They are giving glory to, as he says here, worthless idols. The emphasis is on worthless. They're worthless. They're empty. They're vain. They're pointless. They're powerless. I like this description in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah is there kind of poking fun at um, the idol worshiper. It's a rather long description. I'll just read part of it in Isaiah chapter 44. He's prophesying here. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from, the, from old and declared it? And are you not my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Listen to what he says here. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses, they, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God and casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. 
The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it and planes it and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Consider how foolish that is. Crafting this idol out of wood, you take part of the wood and you make your dinner. You take the other part of the wood and you make yourself warm. And then you take a third part of the wood and you carve a little image out of it and you put it on your shelf and you fall down and worship it. That's what God thinks about idolatry. The praise that should emanate from their lips for the Lord is being given to another. And that is a great tragedy. It is the Lord who made the heavens. He is creator. He is our maker. He is the one who has spoken all things into existence. He is the redeemer. Now this should go without saying, but there are no other paths to God. The point that I'm about to make here is blasphemy by the world standards, but it's absolutely and essentially a biblically Christian doctrine. One of those truths that we talked about earlier that fuel our delight in the Lord our God. There is no other true religion in the world. There is no other God but the Lord. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ stands alone as the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. There is no other God, no other redeemer. The Lord has said that about himself. Jesus said that about himself. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that it is through him, through Jesus Christ, that we are believers in God, not in any other way. Salvation can be found in no other name. One author said that human religions, then, are not alternate paths that all lead to the same God. Another one says that all, as communities of faith, we must be welcoming and inviting, at the same time absolutely clear about the uniqueness of our message. Israel invites the nations to sing Yahweh's praise. And the message of the psalm is absolutely clear about the inadequacies of the gods of the nations. This poem gives us the right example to follow. It is a picture of an open and welcoming community that presents an uncompromising message because that message is based on the truth. We can be open and welcoming to all people, no matter what they choose to believe. But we need to be uncompromising about the truth about the reality that there is no other God, that the Lord alone is God, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that we must bow down and worship him. And salvation is found nowhere else. And getting back to our text, it's sometimes difficult for us to wrap our minds around sections of scripture like this where they speak about gods and idols. Of course, there is no other God. Of course, idols are made from men's hands or not God's. In our advanced society today, who would believe that? Well, people do still believe that. People do still worship idols. And it's not only in the farthest reaches of the jungles of wherever. Some people do still carry physical idols around with them. They set them up in their homes. They bow down and worship them. But there are other kinds of idols other kinds of worthless idols that we cling to. Some are easier to admit than others. Money, possessions, physical pleasures like sex, drugs, food, other people, ourselves. 
our emotional well-being. That's kind of a big thing nowadays. Our physical health. We make idols out of all kinds of things. Those things that we worship, that we take our chief delight in, that we depend upon, that we place as more important than anything else, those things we are likely to sing about to others. What is it for you? What has the affections of your heart? The Lord made the heavens. Who else deserves greater praise? Greater attention, greater admiration, greater awe. I mentioned our, last week our tendency to, to desire to be awed by something. Look at verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. That's the regal part. It's not just that he is our creator. It's that he's our creator and he is glorious. He's majestic. He's a beautiful sight to behold. We see his beauty most visibly in his sanctuary. Probably the easiest reference would have been the physical sanctuary, the tabernacle, in all of its glory. But, of course, that was a copy of the heavenly sanctuary, which men have not seen. Moreover, what we do see in his created order, we see the stars, we see the heavens. David says in Psalm 8, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And as he talks about the majesty of God's name in all the earth, he looks up at the stars in the heavens. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David said, look at all of that amazing work that you made. The beauty of your creation. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Whether we think of the physical tabernacle, the created order, or his heavenly abode above, the idea is that God is decked out in royal splendor as maker of heaven and earth. His handiwork displays his majesty. Thus he deserves our praise. As I said before, the psalm is a reminder. It's a wake-up call. It reminds us of the central mission of the people of God, to praise him so that all the nations would know and love him too. We looked at that first point in verses 1 through 6, that we're called to praise the Lord because he is our regal creator. Let's look at the second half. Again, that we're called to praise the Lord because he is a righteous king. Look at verses 7 through 13. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that, it, all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. As in the first half, we have a call to praise and the cause of praise. The second call to praise we see in verses 7 through 9, and then we see the cause in verses 10 through 13. Look again at the call in 7 through 9. Again, this is a call to praise. Ascribe to the Lord. He repeats that twice in that first verse. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Again in verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord. Give him praise. Proclaim his worth. Worship him. Ascribe what? Glory and strength. Ascribe the glory due his name. Again, that is worship. Thinking on who he is. Thinking on why he is worthy. Delighting in him for all those reasons. And overflowing in praise. And again, to whom is this command directed? 
to all the earth, particularly to the world of humanity, to the nations, to the families of the peoples, he says. Again, this is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is Revelation 7 that we read earlier. People from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping the Lord together. Now, one difference in the second half is that he takes the requirements for worship up a notch. Not only are they to worship with their lips, but they're also to worship with their whole lives. Look again at verse 8. Yes, he says, ascribe glory do his name, but also what? Bring an offering into his courts. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Give an offering. Do not come before the Lord empty-handed. If you've ever wondered why we say that offering is a part of worship, this should clarify it for you. In the same breath as we're told to proclaim the goodness of the Lord, we're also told to give an offering to him. That is why we say that offering is a part of worship, because we tend to use our money on things that we believe are worthy, things that we believe are valuable, things that we believe should be invested in. Is the Lord worthy? Is the Lord valuable? Is it right to invest in the work of the Lord? That's why we bring our offering. Not only are they to give, but they're also to come. Come into his courts. Show up. Be present. Take time out of your schedule to set aside for the gathering of the people of God. In the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the gathering of the people of God was very special, something never to be taken for granted. They literally brought an offering to the gathering to be slaughtered. Thankfully, on account of Christ's work on the cross, we need to bring no animal offering for sin. Christ died once for all. He is the sacrifice for sin. That sacrifice was acceptable to God. And now we need not worry about an animal sacrifice because our sins have been forgiven in him. Nevertheless, our gatherings are still equally significant. We are commanded to gather. That is why it's been particularly difficult not to gather. I mentioned this a bit earlier, but how we gather is not so important. But that we gather in the right spirit to worship the Lord, to ascribe glory due to his name, to sing delight of our delight in him, to encourage one another to do the same, that is the most significant thing. Look back at verse 9. Again, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all all the earth. The Lord was... Praised earlier for the splendor and majesty that goes before him. Here the peoples are told that when they come before him, they must come before him in the splendor of holiness, dressed in holiness, set apart for him, with a heart and mind fully devoted to him, not to lesser things. Our attention ought to be on him when we gather. When we gather to worship him, we should do so with our whole hearts engaged, our whole minds engaged not thinking on so many lesser things. Now, obviously, we're living during some peculiar times, and we do have some folks who have not yet returned to fellowship here. To them, we still offer grace. We still, as an act of love, defer to their sensitivities. As I mentioned earlier, it's easy to become inwardly focused. We we can become inwardly focused by being fearful and not trusting in the Lord enough to go out, but we could also become inwardly focused by being judgmental about those who don't go out. Either way, we have to fight against that. The reality is that there are many reasons and many times when we're not able to gather together. In those times, we have to be creative in maintaining our relationships with one another. Again, pick up the phone. Even if no one's ever called you, pick up the phone and call them. And I know that this is a lost art, but write a note. Write a letter. Get one of those little cards that they sell in a dollar store. 
Throw a couple lines on there. Hey, was thinking about you, praying for you, just wanted to let you know. Drop it in the mail. 39 cents or however much a stamp costs nowadays. Um, that's all it'll cost you, right? Just to send a note, put a smile on someone's face, encourage their hearts. I can't tell you how many times our family has been encouraged because someone decided just to put a note in the mail and say, hey, we're thinking about you. Or else, again, in this day and age, just meet somewhere in an open area where you can catch up. But again, that was our second call to worship. And in verses 10 through 3, we see the cause for worship. Look at verses 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Our psalm is ending where it began, continuing the theme of praising the Lord that universal praise. The main difference in this last section is the emphasis not on what he's done as creator of all people, but rather it is looking forward to what he will do as judge. To set this up, take a look at verse 10. He says, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The Lord does reign. Here we learn that this ought to be a part of our message to the nations. He says again, say among the nations that the Lord reigns. Not only are we to say among the nations that God is God, that the Lord is God, that he is our creator, that he is good, that he is delightful as our savior, but also that he reigns. In the midst of a pandemic, for example, that is why we can be confident that the world is established and it shall not be moved because the Lord upholds all things by his power. He reigns. He rules over all. He controls all things. He sustains all things. Now, the text is being more particular. It says that there he will judge the peoples with equity, and that helps us to understand that the focus of his role as keeper, sustainer, is his role as judge over all. The Lord will never allow the world to be shaken in that sense, that the foundations of justice will never be completely removed. Certainly sometimes it feels that way, right? And we're tempted to despair. Sometimes when we see the injustices in our day, we are tempted to despair. We see injustice rampant in our free democratic nation. We think about the injustices that people feel, even who live outside of the freedoms that we so happily enjoy. For the folks who cannot vote in an election, the folks who are not free to say whatever they want, criticize whoever they want, be whatever they want, buy a house, no matter how flawed, whenever they want. Send their children to the best schools and then complain when the classroom video system that was put together to ensure no lapse in education in the midst of a pandemic breaks down. We can do all of those things. We can complain about all those things. We have all of those things available to us. But many of the nations around us do not. And this is just a reminder that they need to hear that there is a God, that he has created all things, that he desires redemption for all people, and that there isn't a single molecule in existence outside of his sovereign control. That he is a righteous ruler over all nations. And they need to hear us praising him for that. Look again at verses 11 through 13. 
Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, where he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The Lord is judge. He does sovereignly rule and he will judge. The Lord is certainly concerned with inequality, with injustice, with unrighteousness. He does keep the world from utterly falling apart today, no matter how bad it feels. <clears throat> we have to remember that in our darkest hours. We have to encourage ourselves in that truth. And we must remember that he will return to make everything wrong right in the world. So again, to the point of this psalm, we can still sing, no matter what's happening. We don't have to worry about righting every wrong ourselves that we see and experience today. The Lord Jesus will. We can rejoice and we can sing as we wait for that day. We can join the chorus of both heaven and earth, the seas and dry land, all things contained therein. We can join the chorus of the created order as it awaits its Savior to come and usher in that final redemption. Paul says it this way in Romans, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And Paul is here giving us a picture of creation itself. The very planet that we walk on and all things in it groaning under the weight of the curse. And if you can imagine, creation itself is looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ returns and sets everything right. Paul went on, not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, do you think that there are some people in the world, some of the nations around us in our area, the nations are literally around us nowadays? Do you think there are some people who could stand to know that the Lord is God, that he cares about injustice, that he will come to bring justice on the earth? Do you know anyone who needs that message of hope? Let me ask, how are you doing with proclaiming it? Again, certainly on Sunday mornings, we ought to be singing praise to this same God and thinking of his coming. But how are you doing proclaiming that throughout the week? We all have conversations about COVID and the harms that this whole situation has brought to individuals in our society. We all have political conversations about politics in general and certain people in elections in particular. We all have conversations about social injustice, immorality, and other wrongs that we experience daily. How often do you remind those among you who, with whom you have influence, again, not just in the church, but those outside of the believing community, how often do you remind them that the Lord is in control, that he is God, that he is judge, that he is coming to make it right? How often do you present that to them as a reason to have hope? Or do you just complain with them? I like this, another quote. He says, the thing to remember from Psalm 96 is that this missional practice of calling others to join in the praise of Yahweh should never become a minority voice in our setting. 
In Israel's history, the people's obligation to the nations became lost in their own internal discussions of their uniqueness and identity. Their international and intercultural responsibilities became so neglected that the call for the nations to praise God was described in Psalm 96 as a new song. It is vital that our churches remember our own shared responsibility to proclaim the message of the gracious God who reaches out to save people. We should never be so caught up in our own questions that we forget to invite others to join us in bringing praise to our God. You know, Paul, in addressing the philosophers in his day in Acts chapter 17, quotes a portion of this psalm. As he's going through that sermon in Acts 17, when he starts to get to the crux of it, he mentions again this, this idea of the Lord who's coming to judge. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And that was the crux, crux of the matter for Paul. He wanted to make sure as he went out on his journeys among the various peoples that he encountered that they knew not that God is their friend and has a wonderful plan for their life. But rather that God is judged, that we are all accountable to him. In fact, that there's no rogue molecule in all of existence. It's not accountable to him. And that he has fixed a day to see that every molecule and every individual human being who's ever walked the face of this earth will receive the judgment due to them. And again, the reality is that either we will receive the penalty for our sin, or we'll trust in Christ as the one who bore it for us. Those are the only two ways to live, the only two ways to respond to the salvation of God. Well, again, we've been called to praise. We were created to praise, redeemed to praise, and also that the nations would hear of his glory and also give praise to the Lord our God. We saw in the psalm in verses 1 through 6, all are called to praise the Lord because he is our regal creator. In 7 through 13, all are called to praise the Lord because he's a righteous king. Are you ready for his coming? When he comes, will you be on mission, focused, engaged? Do you readily have a new song of praise on your lips to the Lord before the unbelieving world? Or have you become distracted in a myriad of troubles in our day? Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for the reminder this morning that we do have a mission to accomplish. 
We thank you that that mission that we have to accomplish is not going about and making everything that is wrong with this world right in our time and by our own strength. But we thank you that you've given us a very simple mission to know you, to delight in you, to praise you, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to invite others to do the same. We thank you for the reminder in this psalm that that is the simple truth of what you desire for us.